Hi, this is Greg Perry, the <clears throat> historic preservationist. Uh, tonight we're putting on our uh, antiquarian horological hats. So, um, and we're we're joining up with uh, Isabella and, and Luis Alacon from uh, Buenos Aires, Argentina. Uh, we did this about a week ago. We had uh, just a, a lot of great comments. Everyone was very interested in it. So we're going to try this again. But we're going to blend the uh, just an evening with Greg Perry and horology here, and uh, a series of questions by by viewers of some of our uh, recordings, uh, listeners, and, and and the like. So, um, waiting to get Isabella on the line, and uh, hopefully we have a good connection. Um, and sometimes this works, and sometimes this doesn't. So, uh, hello, Isabella. Are you there this evening? Good evening, Mr. Perry. How are you? Oh, not bad, not bad. Not a little bit cooler this week than last week, but uh, I think we got some uh, some very uh, interesting topics here for our our listeners and and your listeners in Buenos Aires this evening. Oh, I'm sure indeed. Our listeners were very pleased to hear the last podcast. Um, well, to start our um, questions. Uh, the audience wants to know, what is a horologist? Um, I think the word horologist um, gets played with a bit, uh, gets mixed up. Um, typically a person who fixes clocks and watches, it's called a watchmaker or a clockmaker. It's kind of a misnomer because they don't make today, or at least in general, the last 300 or so years, they haven't made clocks or watches. But a horologist is one who repairs, um, conserves, and understands the um, the history of, of clocks and watches. Whereas your typical repair person would be considered a clocker or a clock or watch repair. Yes. Um, so there's 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 a great there's a great difference there. Um, adding the historical perspective. Um, even when I was uh, a furniture maker, I never quite understand why the, the, the people that I trained, some of them seven at one time, they would never, um, they were great wood mechanics, but they never cared who the original maker of the piece we were trying to copy. They never cared about that. So it's kind of the same way with the clock and watchmaker that you find down the street. Um, we're broadcasting here out of southern New Jersey, and essentially there's only a few uh, clockmakers here, um, no pronounced watchmakers that I know in this area, but uh, myself and another, and uh, for the most part, the others that I know are not, I wouldn't consider horologists strictly, strictly clockmakers, strictly fixers and repairs. They don't care about the history, or they, at least they don't emulate that, so hopefully that answers your question. Indeed, but I have uh, something else. Um, your audience wants to know what is an antiquarian Orologist. So it's it's kind of the the, the specialty where I, I I put myself in, being a scholar and his, historian of um, colonial and pre-colonial Renaissance history. I'm applying uh, knowledge of early clocks dating back to the uh, the second quarter of the 17th century, and that's my preferred clock of repair or watch mid 17th century up until the beginning of the 19th century. So 
It's one who has the, the uh, again, master of the history of the antique clocks, understanding the materials and the techniques they use to make these, and how those techniques are, um, over time, get stressed out and cause failures, uh, breakages. So you have to have a totally different mindset than dealing with clocks that were just, or, or watches that are just 100 years old. And sometimes there's the, a mythic, mythological factor going into these, uh, these old timekeepers. And a lot of the clock repairers don't want to bother themselves with that. They're just good technicians. And there's nothing wrong with that because we do need just good technicians. And, you know, we talk sometimes about like the, the individuals that uh, uh, fix, say, Rolex watches. They go to school for that. And I'm not trying to be degrading here, but there's such a repetitive, repetitiveness about fixing a Rolex-type watch. You have just a few gears. If they lose their teeth, you, you call up, you order a replacement gear, you put it in. That's not the way with antiquarian watches and clocks. These parts and components that are broken have got to be made. Not only they have to be made by hand, and there's usually not a template to make them by, and you try to make them with like materials that they were produced originally. So you're trying to find old brass or steel with the, you know, the older composites or recipe that made it and make those replacement parts out of it. So that's the difference. And in our, in our restoration or conservation practices, um, myself being an antiquarian horologist, I'm using very sympathetic methods. Nothing, nothing to damage uh, the surface of, of any of the metals involved or other materials involved. So very sympathetic, easygoing, no caustic chemicals, things of that nature. Whereas my contemporaries are just clock and watchmakers, um, they kind of uh, skip over these aspects. Interesting. Could you tell us where does one find horological training? Um, horological training is a bit sparse here in the States. Uh, unfortunately, um, I, I had a 20-year affiliation with the Nash, National Watch and Clock Museum, or National Watch and Clock Collectors called the NAWCC in Columbia, Pennsylvania. Uh, for years, we had a school through the 90s up until I believe around 2009, when we didn't have enough in, interested individuals to put 12 in a class. We couldn't put 12 potential watchmakers and, and or 12 potential clockmakers. It took that many in their tuition to pay for the three teachers there and their benefits, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So how sad is that? In America, the only bona fide training program at that time couldn't put 24 students in one consecutive year. So uh, we voted to shut and close the program down. So it's been down since 2009. And uh, since then, uh, you know, really has not gained any traction to reopen it. There just has been re renewed interest. And, and I must add, the NAWCC, um, we have a lot of complaints sometimes about we have a lot of pseudo people out there in the field in the tri-state area repairing clocks and watches and just making horrific repairs and they're not trained they're just someone who reads a book or worse yet looks on bloody youtube and looks at some idiots out of their basement to think they know how to do something and they're trying to train themselves from joe blow in his basement how to replace the third gear 
in the in the strike train and and they put their shingle out and they they call themselves a clock or watchmaker they're cause, causing more damage to our timepieces they should stay away from them but the problem that we have at the National Watch and Clock Museum is that these people are part of the organization. They pay their, their $45 a year dues, so they're part. And, you know, so it's, it pulls down the other people. I've tried for years to lobby with the director and the board of trustees to make standards for clock and watchmakers who are professional. But the problem is, as greed goes, greed goes. And uh, they said, well, we'll lose our $45 from a lot of people. They won't be happy. They have to jump over hoops and training to be a clockmaker in our program. So they refuse to put standards on people that fix clocks and watches. So hence, being part of the museum for 20 years, I would see the thousands and thousands of complaints against people that were part of the organization. And the, the normal, normal customer doesn't understand it. They think they're part of the National Watch and Clock Organization. They think they're trained, and there's only 3% of our 13,000 members that are trained, 3% nationwide. So that speaks, oh. that speaks for itself. Wow. I understand you are, or you were, a professor of the NAWCC School of Horology. What did you teach? Um, primarily, I, I stayed away from teaching hardcore clock courses. I, I taught some basic courses, time and strike courses. Um, they would have been weekends, three, four days maximum. And uh, they would have been building courses. You know, maybe we uh, teach a course this month, skip three months, come back. We teach the second version, the third and fourth version. Um, but my, uh, my mainstay of teaching there was teaching the decorative art courses of the cases. How do you build a clock case? How do you restore a clock case? How do you rebuild film finishes when there's damage? Um, how, do you, uh, how do you fix locks and, and things of that nature? So I was dealing with clock courses in the Beaux Arts, um, carving, gilding, case making, veneering. Um, so that's where my real passion lied with wood. So I was the only one doing wood. We, we had two clockmakers and two watchmakers teaching the hardcore courses of the mechanism. So. And we got to the point where things were going well in the 2006, 7, and 8 that the National Watch and Clock Museum sanctioned my studio in Topton, Pennsylvania as the studio that I would be teaching all the decorative arts courses. So they would send the, the, the students down to me and I would teach out of my studio in Topton, Pennsylvania. And, and that worked well for a while, but then again, interest started to fall off in the entire program based in Columbia, Pennsylvania. So we had to cease that. So again, I was teaching decorative art courses and a few basic clock courses. And uh, so by 2009, that had all petered out and kind of the taste and flair of, of people using their minds and, and, and future dexterous skills to fix clocks and watches has waned severely. Oh, very sad. Uh, could you tell us what is the significance of a moon dial? Uh, a moon dial, sometimes called a rolling moon, and if anyone out there, again, some of these uh, issues we'll talk about and uh, material issues are relevant and very difficult to explain sometimes, but if you ever look at a, a, a clock dial, the top sometimes looks like a tombstone. It's primarily square or maybe a bit rectangular with a, a half 
a circle in the top and in that you would have a, a wheel in the behind the dial cut out of an aperture or opening which would show two phases of the moon so this was developed in the probably the 1720s in, in England primarily London by all the great great clockmakers two or three were leading this and society had a, a difficult time of getting from point A to B at night so as we know today there are certain days in a month's duration that you have a lot of moon glare or moon reflection so the moon wheel would be calibrated as such and you could read off the top of the the moon dial um, in its calibration scale how many days you would have seen very adequate moonlight say to walk three or four miles through the woods to to your uh, your religious or your spiritual ceremony or to go to your friends so those other days i mean the, this this country in england was so heavily heavily wooded you couldn't do that it would be impossible to do this so again the moon wheel tells um, the best days to get the most reflection of moonlight in in the month and uh, it turns every uh, 29 and a half days and uh, it was later adapted uh, you know by putting additional gears to tell tides high tides and low tides in certain port towns so the clockmakers um, put a little more technology into the mechanism and it really solved a lot of problems or it started creating just even more timing pro more timing uh, efficiencies not problems timing efficiencies because not only did the clock tell time but it told you when it was high and low tide so very important for mercantile information so wow very interesting yeah, yeah. Uh, can you tell? Can you explain for our listeners what is a thirty-hour clock? Um, kind of a misnomer, but I, I think with everything uh, horologists do, I think we we the original horologist who built clocks and watches, and let's let's just keep in mind this really stopped by building by hand clocks and watches probably around eighteen forty. In America and or England and the rest of Europe so watches and clocks by hand stopped then mechanization came in around 1850 uh, but the question was about a 30-hour clock and so a 30-hour clock is really a 24-hour clock and it gets wound when it's a, when it's a tall case clock it gets wound by a chain it's called a continuous chain and you pull the chain and wait up and the bell strikes and the time runs off of one weight one, one continuous chain <laughs> and that drops down every 30 hours so you have 30 hours to rewind your clock um, more often than not it's not 30 maybe it's 27 26 hours but all we need is to have 24 hours so at the same time tomorrow we can rewind our clock um, so that is a 30 hour clock as opposed to a eight-day clock and an eight-day clock again there you go with an extra day typically you know you're going to get seven days out of a clock wind so on the uh, seventh or eighth day you need to rewind it again so that's uh and and again typically the 30-hour clock has one weight is a chain wind and just keep note sometimes on a dial there'll be holes in the dial like you would have your winding post and where you'd put a key on it's try to fake you if it's a 30-hour clock they're fake there to look like it's a clock that it isn't so it was the uh, the person the homeowner who bought the clock he could pay a little bit extra to have holes drilled in the dial and have fake winding arbors put on 
and it would look like you had an eight-day clock. So when you had your friends over, your friends think you could afford an eight-day clock, and really it was a single-day clock. So, all that trouble. All that trouble with a lot of deception. I understand in your clock collection you um, have a few clocks with the round glass window in the midsection door. Could you explain what is that for? Um, yes, the, the midsection door. So, you know, typical, typical clock anatomy, um, you have the hood or bonnet, depending what country you're talking about. You have the waist or midsection and you have the base. And in the midsection, you have a door, if no one knows, that is locked with a key. And you open that and you can see the pendulum go back and forth and you can watch the weights go up and down. So typically when you wind your clock, whether it's an eight day clock or 30 hour clock, as you're winding, you keep the mid door open to see that you don't wind, overwind the weights too high in the movement. And you have a certain level that you, you wind the weights. So um, it became fashionable sometime probably around 1710 to take a clock and keep in mind these doors were all wood in the front and you would have had itinerant people coming around just like we had itinerant painters in the 18th century we had itinerant lamp lighters in the 18th century you would have itinerant people come around saying hey do you want to have the latest gadget for your, your existing grandfather clock i'm going to cut a round hole in the mid door and they would cut a hole and put a piece of glass and it was a bullseye piece of glass it was a piece of glass that would have been turned by the gaff of a, of a glass blower and uh, they would have turned this perpendicular piece of glass spinning through the air and then uh, broken off and then the glass would have been cut round and fitted into this hole in the door. So what this was for, you had the latest gadget. You could see your pendulum going back and forth in this hole even though it was dark inside because the pendulum was usually a brass and it was polished bright and any light would reflect. So just imagine in 1720, you're having your friends over on a Friday night. They can come over because they got moonlight from their moon dial. They know when they can walk two miles through the woods. And they want to see your latest uh, gadget that you've had uh, applied to your, your horological machine. And keep in mind the clock in the 18th century. If you had a clock, you were rich. You were, chances are, you're not only rich, but you were knowledgeable. You were semi-educated. And you were looked up upon because the clockmakers of the day somewhere around the 1660s were the greatest scientists of the day. They were the astronomers, they were the, the doctors, they were anything of, of high uh, mechanical learning. So, Very interesting. Can you tell us when clock making began? Well, I think clock making, you have to go back, clock making began with watchmaking. Um, some of these early clocks were called table clocks. Um, at times I call them table watches, but perhaps table clocks would have been apropos. Somewhere in the 1470s, some of the first table clocks came out. They were like a horizontal disc, and oh my God, the timekeeping was atrocious. They could be off one or two hours a day. That was their accuracy. They had springs, and uh, you'd wind the springs up. And it was more of a parlor game. It was something interesting to be seen. Again, just like the um, the bullseye, or and I, I didn't mention the right name. It's called a lenticle. The lenticle that we just talked about in the last question. 
It was like one of the latest gadgets, the table clock. The clocks evolved from the table clock to the, the blacksmith, the locksmith, um, making um, large mechanisms for uh, towers, tower clock movements, and that's how these things evolved. And, uh, you know, sometime in, um, going into 1650 or so, clocks were still highly ina inaccurate, maybe an hour per 24 hours. And, and then seemingly what happened was um, a Dutchman named Christian Huygens took a lead off of um, former Galileo's when he was in Pisa. In, in, in the segment of an earthquake, he was watching a chandelier going back and forth and he was noticing the rhythm of the swing as the earthquake occurred, how much rhythm to the left, to the right, to the left, to the right. And he wrote in papers that if this was applied to a clock mechanism to get rid of the old folio uh, type mechanism in a clock, um, a clock would become much more accurate. So about 75, about 100 years later, this was applied by Christian Huygens. He invented the long meter or royal pendulum and applied it to existing clock movements in the day, removing the folio, and overnight timekeeping just honed down in, in accuracy, just became very accurate, probably like uh, 10 or 15 minutes a day overnight. And that was one of the, the biggest uh, jumps of horological advancements, uh, that amount of accuracy. Thank you, Mr. Perry. Um, to continue, could you tell us how did the different grandfather clocks, cases, styles change over years? Well, typically, um, grandfather clocks started somewhere in the 1650s. And then with this royal pendulum we just talked about, which made accuracy possible, um, early tall case clocks, as we call them, grandfather clocks is a misnomer. It's a it was the name of a song in the late 19th century, and somehow Americans equate the word grandfather clock to the song. It's like you say you're going to go Simonize your car. I guess that means you're going to go wax your car. Simonize was one of the first waxes for car finishes, kind of the same thing. So, uh, I yeah. see. Yeah. Well, thank you for the uh, clarification. Um, could you explain the evolution of clock dials? Well, let me, let me, I'm sorry, let me go back and let me, let me finish the, I was gathering thoughts, so let me, uh, let me finish the evolution of, of cases. I'm but, sorry. No, 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 it was my, it was my, my misnomer, so sorry. But what was happening was, um, they were getting, uh, after the Royal Pendulum was made, they, they took that tall case clock movement, that eight-day movement and they put it they made a bracket or a little shelf and they put the movement on a shelf they cut a hole in the shelf so the weight chains or the ropes could gather down through and the pendulum could and the clock would be running um, every eight days or some on 30 uh, every day 20 or 4 30 hour clocks as we call them and the clock would be very exposed the mechanisms on a shelf and generally these were always in the room of the house where cooking was taking place or the fireplace was so we have a lot of oils in the air, a lot of soot, a lot of carbon floating around. So it's not a good thing for a mechanized uh, or machine. 
And what happens is these clocks got very dirty very fast once the oils in the air landed on the gears and plates, then dirt was attracted to it and would stop the clock. So two things were going on. And the other thing that would stop the clock are these pesty little things that run around on the floor called cats. So everybody needed a cat for rodent control, and cats were very important. And even cats today are important for rodent control, and they were probably really good companions back then as cats are today. But the little cat, just, you know, curiosity that killed the cat, could keep its paws off of the weights or the pendulum. So the cat all day would stop the pendulum. And here, this is the most important item in your house. You knowing time puts you ahead of your competitor down the street in business situations or religious situations or um, as the growth of a family in education. So, but now that we have the cat that we need for rodent control is stopping the time. So somebody comes up with the idea first to control the, um, the dirty air. So they make a hood and put, so it becomes a hooded clock on a bracket on the wall with its pendulum swinging and its weight or weights going down. So that solved a lot of the oil problem from the cooking and the soot from the fireplace. But we still have these pesky cats that can't keep their, their paws off of the, uh, the pendulum and the weights. So then somebody said, let's case the clock. So the first clock cases looked like chimneys, just a straight board of case right up in the air. And that was it. And then somewhere around 1670s, clock cases started to become decorative. Clock cases were following simultaneously with the type of decorative art. The William and Mary, George I, 2nd, 3rd, 4th, right up into the mid or early 19th century. So clock cases followed furniture design. Design times, William and Mary, whether it was marquetry, the clock cases had marquetry. They had a whole slew of different kinds of marquetry, but that's for another, another time. So nevertheless, this is the evolution of clock cases. This is how it occurred or why it occurred. And the clock became just another piece of furniture, but it was a piece of furniture with brains. So that's kind of the evolution of clock styles over the years till the early 19th century. How about the evolution of clock dials? Well, the other evolution of clock dials um, starts out, clocks are very stoic. There's huge artistic endeavor into marquetry clocks in the late 17th century. Um, you push into some beautiful veneered clocks, the walnut veneers of the early 18th century, and then the beautiful Yerushi lacquer or chinoiserie decoration of the mid 18th century. Um, so these clock cases were very flamboyant. And I think the artisans of the day wanted to counter that with a beautiful dial, a polished brass dial. And they would have the chapter rings, the second bits, and any other ornamentation. Now, they would also be made out of brass, but they would be silver with silver oxide and then applied. And the engraving would take place. All this hand engraving, putting the numerals on the chapter ring or the numerals on the second ring and things of this nature, or the background of the dial. So the essence of having bright brass up there with all these decorative dials from the third quarter of the 17th century to the mid 18th century was much more befitting. It could have been a painted dial, but it was a 
bright brass and you would have had chapter rings and spandrels in the corner. The spandrels would have been out of gold. And they felt early on that the chapter ring being silver with the numerals engraved under candlelight situations <coughs> was the best possibility to see time from across the room at night under a candlelight. So that's why chapter rings in certain parts of the clock were silvered and the rest of them was to reflect any ambient light in the room back at the viewer. So that's how we, uh, you know, that's how that. But what, what, what happened was as clocks started to fall out of favor in the beginning or late part of the third quarter of the 18th century, clocks became out of favor. Small American clocks started to be made and they started to take away the market of the British and French clocks. So um, what occurred was one of twofold. The, the brass dial was basically dead, and they started taking the painted dial, painting it white, but putting flowers in the corner where the spandrels would have been. So in addition to that white dial, they found would resonate more light candlelight than the actual brass dial that was so revered for so long. But clock cases became more countrified in that last quarter of the 18th century in England and America, for, for the most part. There was always spectacular one-off commissions. For, for the most part, they became very countrified. So the white dial with painted flowers and the spandrels or pigs in, in the arch was very apropos. Wow, very interesting. Uh, I know you are a gilder. Did any clocks have reverse painting on glass on their cases? Well, just if anybody doesn't know what reverse painting on glass is, it's, it's as it says it is, it's taking the actual, um, the actual piece of glass and painting a scene. It could be a house scene, it could be a tree on the back. And, uh, you know, you, you paint the scene and you apply, you put adhesive on the back of the glass on the painting and you apply gold, gold leaf, and you actually scratch off with like a wooden, say a wooden pencil, no lead, but you scratch off, say the outline of a house and things like that. And when you view on the front, it looks very realistic, but it's a high skill job. And there's only a few people in the country that do it in America anyway, maybe three. And one of the best known is my friend Lee Davis. He's out near uh, York, Pennsylvania. So, uh, um, so he's the, he's the master. I've done some reverse painting on glass, but Lee has done this every, uh, every day probably for the last 50 years. Yeah. So requires glass, gold leaf, uh, asphaltum, tar, and some other painting pigments to, uh, to complete the reverse painting. And most of that would only be applied in the tympanum of the clock. So up and beyond the arch, these would be inset panels. And uh, anyway, I've made three or four pairs of these, so that's, that's where the application would be on a tall clock. Could you tell your audience when was marquetry applied to the cases of tall clays, case clocks? Uh, marquetry was used in the William and Mary period, probably somewhere around 1670. And that was coincided with around 1656 when, uh, when the uh, Christian Huygens of, of uh, you know, the, the Dutch physicist explorer, that's when he came up with a seconds pendulum. So right around that time, the Dutch really started marquetry in the Netherlands and Amsterdam. And that type of marquetry was being applied to clocks. But marquetry um, went over several different genres. You would have floral marquetries, what called seaweed marquetries, very complex geometric uh, asymmetrical patterns. 
and uh, Roman uh, arabesque type marquetry. So those three are the basic marquetry styles that are applied in tall case clock cases. Very good. Um, could you tell us what is maintaining power in a clock movement? On on very uh, the very high end, the better English clocks, maintaining power. Um, well, what happens when you wind a clock on the time side? That's the side that actually runs the clock. When you wind it on the time side, if the clock is running, which it normally is, every wind you take, the clock will not be keeping time. So the clock loses time. But you're only talking about seconds. But even back in the early 18th century, 1710, 1720, the the Precision clockmakers were concerned that winding their clocks, somebody could end up losing two or three minutes in the end because the clock is not powered. So what winding power is, it's small springs on the winding hour, arbor of, uh, of the clock so that when you release the power and you're starting to wind your main weight up, there'll be a little spring that will just give the pendulum a boost uh, an impetus of power to keep it going. So be, there'll be no loss of time. So that is maintaining power. And sometimes maintaining power has two little shutters that actually go across the uh, the winding arbor holes to keep the, the dirt out. I hope that is a good, adequate explanation. So you end up not losing time by winding your clock. Well, I would hope so. I understand some clocks run longer between winding than others. Could you explain why that happens? Well, normally clocks run longer. We, we talked, we broached the subject of a 30-hour clock earlier. Um, there's an eight-day clock. There's a one-month clock. And this, these are clocks going back to the early 18th century. A one-month clock, a six-month clock, and a year-going clock. And they call them going, one-month going six month going, two month going, year going. So I actually have a uh, six month going clock. It has a weight of about 80 pounds. But what has to happen in the, the drive train um, of the, the time train, certain three more gears must be added to achieve that six month clock. And another gear must be added to achieve the uh, year going clock. And the weights are very heavy on these clocks. I think the six month clock, which is a famous clock, which is in a few hardback books, um, operates on an 80 pound weight. So you have to have very heavy duty cord or cable and, uh, but it still has the original weight. So, but once you get set up, you can walk away and it's going to go, go, go for six months. Oh, that's the clock to have then. Um, how are its spandrels on a clock dial made? Um, as we touched, we, we talked a little bit this evening about clock dials. Spandrels are those um, carved, reverse carved objects in the corners of the square section of the clock dial. You know, when the clock dial is out of brass. So these are applied brass or bronze cast, sand cast ornaments in the corners. And they follow the decorative arts decoration, you know, from the 1670s all the way up until you know, the, the stoppage of the late 18th century brass dials. But what would happen, someone would actually carve a reverse, uh, you would carve a reverse spandrel as you would in wood, and that's going to be your template. So then you, you go into traditional sand casting, 
And if anyone, uh, for the duration of our podcast, we won't have time. But if you look up the NAWCC and Greg Perry, and you'll read my article on sandcasting. And that was the time when I lived in Paris. I apprenticed under a bronzier. And we, uh, you know, we're always something was being cast in the studio. Wow, very interesting. From a listener, this is a question from a listener. Uh, she says, I noticed some parts of a clock dial are losing their silvering. Can you explain why? Well, we just touched base about brass clock dials. And I must go back and add the evolution of clock dials was not just... Uh, it's like, it's like cars today. I mean, uh, the automobile today has been around for, what, 100 plus years. And there's a point where, you know, if designs don't repeat themselves in body styles, then these clock designers, they add ridiculous looking taillights and front lights and side lights. All this ridiculous crap that we don't need on cars, you know, to visually make them look junkier than they actually are. So what happened was... In addition to stylistic changes to the cases, the evolution of clock dials, um, clocks were getting less popular. People were buying pocket watches, so the big clocks were losing their favor. So that was a reason why they went to the white dial. It was like this new thing of the next next year, the next decade. White dials replacing blast, um, brass dials. And they came up and they painted the whole dial white, bright white. It was good, again, for for uh, seeing when you're in your house, but it was a cheapening of the dial. The, the brass, the, the white painted dial cost only a quarter of the brass dial. And then at that point, you couldn't get the, uh, the hard uh, brass dial or brass components anymore. Uh, can, to continue, Mr. Perry, how are clock hands made in the 18th century? Well, in the 18th century, they were, they were drawn out probably with a pencil uh, some kind of piece of paper, you know, putting some carbon on the back of a piece of paper, then drawing it onto a piece of um, a piece of metal that was that was annealed, and uh, then this was cut out with what would have been a jeweler's saw in the day. And if you look at uh, there's a couple great horological books out there on clocks and clock hands. It is just a marvel um, to take a jeweler's saw, which chances are they'd have to make the jeweler's saw blade. So they'd have to make this blade first, or a series of blades, and then actually do piercings sometimes in the brass to, to cut things out. So to cut the center of the hand out, if it was hollow, they're going to have to make a small drill cut, pierce the blade through, and cut, and cut, and file. So cutting with a, a jeweler saw blade and filing is how these things were done. And they are absolute masterpieces, particularly when you get to the long sweep second hands in some tall case clocks. Would you say that there were ever manufacturing standards in the 18th century? Uh, there, there were. I mean, in, in somewhere around, uh, you know, when, when Huygens invented the, uh, the pendulum in, in 1656, uh, a few years later, the worshipable company of clockmakers in uh, London came up with standards. So the, the actual English government created standards that if you were making clock components in Liverpool or London or in Edinburgh, Scotland or Wales, that third gear up the time train would fit impeccably. So they came up with standards of all the components of the tall case clock. So the government, and then that's when the Worshipful Company of Clockmakers started as a clockmaking organization. Uh, 
and it was essentially a union hall for clockmakers. They were on a par with all the other trades uh, or put well, well above them, but that gave them union benefits even back then. Obviously, no such thing has existed probably in England since about 1850, and it never existed here. It's a joke. Well, as, as, as far as the as far as the clockmaking trade goes, there was never any teaching here, and the teaching is just in the last several years, and now that's been halted. That's a pity. Uh, before we end our um, interview, Mr. Perry, I want to thank you for sharing your expertise and your knowledge and uh, spending some time with us. And to uh, finish, could you properly explain how to clean a clock movement? Uh, yes, there's there's a lot of uh, in, in, in starting to write a book on clock conservation, working for the museum, um, and working with uh, individuals at the British Horological Institute. We've come up with standards of how to handle the treatment of brass. So simply by putting uh, you know very light detergent, putting the uh, disassembled clock mechanism in parts in a basket and putting them into a detergent and warming it up and scrubbing maybe with a soft bristle uh, toothbrush. That is the way an antiquarian horologist um, addresses a clock mirror, a period clock movement, not by putting it and not by putting it in an ultrasonic cleaner. We're doing a couple of things that don't work here. The ultrasonic is sending sound waves through the objects. Don't We must remember these objects have been pounded hard hardened brass, hardened steel, and that causes stresses to relieve. And it's not a good thing to do this. So um, all this is done by hand. Most of my competitors use ultrasonic machines. I tell them not to. In addition, the solutions they're putting in are ammoniated. The ammoniated solutions, when if they, the clock mechanism is, is, mechanism is left in the, uh, the bath too long, under too much heat, too many radio waves, what's going to happen is the actual uh, chloride ion in ammonia will get into the brass plates and actually start eating up the lead. There's a ton of lead because in the 18th century they couldn't make a good mixture to make brass. So you have one apprentice constantly um, you know, mixing the vat and the other guys are stoking the fire. So a lot of times you get a lot of concentrations of, of lead and unfortunately the chlorine in this uh, this cleaning solution, the commercially available stuff, will eat into that. And if you start pulling like a card out of the castle of cards, the whole castle is going to fall down. And in this case, if the plates are ha um, hammered flat and you cause some of the lead to deteriorate because of chlorine in the cleaning process, the plate may come out like a potato chip. Here it's been safe for 200, 275, 300 years, and you can destroy the clock plates in a matter of minutes. So one has to address these and approach the materials uh, as best possible. But i also like to uh, thank you, Isabella and Luis, uh, for coming on again. And, and hopefully this, you know, your listeners down there will find this enlightening. It may not be for everyone, and uh, not everyone may understand what we're talking about. But uh, horology is a dying art. It's, it's, it's not a, just an art. It's an art, craft, and science that's melded together. And we've lost so many young people in the training in this field in the last 20, 25 years. And uh, we really have to try and save it. So 
but thanks for coming on, and, and I'm sure this will be a blockbuster uh, uh, podcast, and uh, we'll try and map out our next one in a few weeks. Thank you so much, and uh, Thank keep you, safe Mr. down there from that, that bloody virus. I hear it's, it's going up on your neck of the woods. So. Yes, we all have to keep safe, and also I... Uh... And wear a mask. What masks are important? Again, as in our last podcast, we have too many people here that just don't care. And, uh, I mean, if they don't care about themselves is one thing, but don't, don't be a carrier for somebody else. So wear a mask that's coming from the artist and the craftsman. We should all wear masks. Thank you, Mr. Perry.